Phantom Sway podcast. Music, books, ritual human sacrifice. Wait, 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 wait. Not that last one. PhantomSway.com. This episode of Life in Concert, we sit down with musician, songwriter, motion picture sound editor, and all-around Renaissance man, Ernie Mannix, as he shares with us his most memorable concert experience and his dinner party playlist. This is Good Guys. So today on the Life in Concert podcast, we have the infamous Ernie Mannix. Uh, Ernie, how are you, sir? Hi, Mark. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know what? Thank you. Um, you are, I think you're the first famous person that I'm actually going to have on this podcast. So. Well, I don't know how famous I am, but infamous, maybe. <laughs> well, at least you have a title, right? Unlike some right. of us. <laughs> Exactly. Perfect. Famous for wrong things. Well, you know what? If you live long enough, it's going to happen. That's going to happen. And uh, <laughs> you know what? I've done a lot of things that I'm not proud of, but you know, you live and learn, right? <laughs> this is true. Well, hey, um, again, so thank you for joining us on Life in, in uh, Concert, the podcast. And uh, I got to admit, um, I've been chomping at the bit to... Uh, have a conversation with you about your most memorable concert. Um, you know, one thing for me is, uh, you know, when I reach out to people and they let me know what that one concert is, I'm always amazed and thrilled all at the same time. For me personally, it's just a great opportunity to kind of learn a little bit more about, uh, about these guys. So, before we get into uh, what that particular concert is, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. I'm a, a composer and arranger by trade and um, done a bunch of feature films and some TV work. And then I started doing music editing and uh, music editing, I just kind of backed into it. Someone said that, you know, they knew I was a composer and they, they had a TV show they were, they needed edited. And um, I really didn't know what music editing was and um, just kind of fell into it. And the first show that I did, I won a, a Golden Reel Award, which is the uh, Motion Picture Sound Editors Guild. And um, it's kind of like the technical oscars or whatever and um and i just continued on that for quite a few years and um still doing some composing i'm up scheduled for a feature coming up in the next independent feature in the next uh, few months and i'm also a writer of words and i um yes i uh been writing a lot of short stories, and I wrote a novel that was released a couple of years back, which had very good reviews, and um, kind of proud of that novel. I, I like it, and I'm, I still write. Uh, I'm still writing some um, short stories and the beginnings of a second novel um, with the same main character. Okay. 
Very nice. Very nice. So what did you start doing first? Did you start doing music first or did you have affinity for for the written word or, you know, take us back to when you were a child. I mean, what were some of your influences? Oh, well, influences, um, boy, I'm really going to date myself here. Uh, of course, when the Beatles, um, first came out, I was just a very small boy. And, um, I remember that like it was yesterday and no pun intended. I just, uh, couldn't, couldn't believe the energy and the power and the coolness of what they were. You know, and I saw it, but it made such a gigantic impression on me. And previous to that, you know, the earliest memories um, were spinning like old Bossa Nova records and stereo um, test records. My parents um, were real cool. They let me play with their fairly expensive hi-fi system back when I was a baby and I, they, they never really said don't touch that and I was able to put records on you know just as a toddler almost and um, spin stereo demonstration records you know with the, 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 the bongo on the right in there in the right speaker do 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 and then the bongo on the left speaker do 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 you know demo records so I listened to that because there was nothing else in the house I think they had three albums it was a stereo demonstration record a record called um, Bossa Nova by Enoch Light and his orchestra. And um, I think the third album was My Fair Lady soundtrack. Oh, so so I got, you know, and Richard Rogers, uh, st- you know, stereo craziness and um, some, you know, some Latin beats. Then the Beatles, not too much after that, um, you know, right around that time the Beatles came out and I just, you know, went berserk you know i i went down the basement i had my kids the high top sneakers and i i tried to um glue wood blocks onto the bottoms of the sneakers because i wanted beetle boots <laughs> I, i'm not kidding I, and i painted my sneakers black and put wood blocks on the bottom which didn't last very long but that's how insane i was oh my gosh yeah. so um you know, then I started playing in bands when I was, in, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. And um, I had an album released in um, the early 80s. Um, it was called Ernie Mannix. Fast Forward was the name of the album. And um, that was interesting, um, interesting process. I was recording at the same time as Joan Jett and... Um, um, it's, we were at a, we recorded all over New York, but then we were in, in a place called Kingdom Sound in Syosset, and um, she was doing daytimes, uh, um, and I was doing evenings. And we, you know, we didn't become friends, but we would hang out and watch TV and talk and stuff. Oh and, and the funny thing is, the most thing I remember about Joan Jett was. I opened up, the, uh, there was a cabinet that they stored all the, the three-inch, the two-inch tapes, excuse me, um, that you, those were the master tapes that they put on the big machines that you record to. This is, you know, way before Pro Tools. So um, you, you'd take out your tapes that you'd want, and you'd usually have one or two, maybe three songs on one of those big reels of tape. So I remember opening up the cabinet looking for my reels, and there were Joan Jett's reels were being put away, and one on the spine of this big, big box, it said, I love rock and roll. And I remember 
that was the song that was on that particular reel. And I remember thinking, what a stupid <laughs> song. Who the hell names a song I Love Rock and Roll? It just sounded so ridiculous to me. Yeah. And then, I mean, of course, now it's an anthem. And, you know, what the heck did I know? Right. But, uh, you know, she, uh, I, I remember uh, her, she had um, quite a sailor's mouth on her, and she loved to watch sports all day. Um, but she was a nice lady. She was, she was pretty cool. And so how did that whole thing come about? So were you being sought out to make the album or was it more of a grassroots type of type of situation where, you know, you knew that you wanted to make an album, um, and you kind of went out and and made it happen? Well, yeah, well, a a little of both. I I was, I used to work as when I was about 18 or 19, I worked as a production assistant and uh, Jimi Hendrix's old studio called Electric Lady down in, uh, on 8th Street in the Greenwich Village. And um, the, the, I worked with this uh, record producer named John Ferrara. And um, John was kind of famous for the disco era. Um, he um, was a talented guy, and he brought, like, big band stuff and big arrangements to disco. And he did these big concept albums. And... Um, he was. He actually had a whole. There was a half an hour hit on him in on 60 Minutes, way a long time ago. Um, Dan Rather interviewed him on you know this. It was the disco hour record production. But anyway, I worked with him, and uh, he ended. I ended up always playing him songs and stuff that I, I was writing. And he said, "Let's do an album." We did an album. There was some backing. Um, and it had distribution and all that. And, uh, you know, it was just, just such a tough thing. It was, it was it was a hot pick by this guy, Cal. I forget his name, Cal something or other. He had a – back in those days, there was, uh, you know, that was still when record albums were making it. It was called a hot sheet or something. I forget the guy's name. He made this one pick, and he picked my record. So it was, you know, it, it was it, it caught fire real fast, but, but then, unfortunately – you know, it didn't break that all that big. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, nevertheless, it's such a great experience. I mean, you mentioned how tough it was then. Um, <laughs> I mean, these days, you know, to do you think it's tougher today to kind of break out and uh, make a record than it was back then? Well, With- it's easier to make one now, but... Uh- you know, Quincy Jones said the other day, "There's no, there is no more music industry." I mean, I, I don't did. know. I did. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. I don't know what is happening. You know, I always get a giggle. We were, we listened to uh, the Beatles on the Beatles channel on Sirius, and I was listening to some of George Harrison's vocals and Lennon's vocals, and you know, I said to my kids, I said. This, if they were on um, America's Got Talent, they would never make it today. If they yeah. came out, and I don't, I really don't think because they're not doing all that raging and, and big, big singing and all, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, you know, but as far what, back to your question, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's easy to make a record. Anybody could do it. I could do it with this laptop. You know, yeah. After this interview, we could record something, but I think that you know what are you going to do with it i think it's it's very hard to make money with it you know i i don't think it's about records anymore it's there used to be um these things called a and r men back in the day and they they were they really they picked talented bands and they and they picked great songs and they put that together 
and they made great records. And I don't know if you remember the thing called a gold record. That was the the gold standard with when when music when record companies got a gold album that was huge that was a hundred thousand sales yeah it, that category doesn't even exist anymore yeah you know it has to be multi-platinum now a hundred thousand sales you're you're out of business yeah so um you know back in those days they were happy with making a little money on these bands and moving forward but because they did it for the love of the music that died and that started dying in the in the late 70s you know that that stuff started really going bye-bye yeah. and when we took over the record companies stuff started going south as far as music yeah i mean i i give you kudos for for doing that and having that experience uh yeah fun. Do, fun. do you think you would ever try it again um, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm still always recording stuff and, um, I got lazy, you know, um, that I would only just record stuff for films that I was getting paid for or TV shows or whatever like that, you know, but, um, a couple of years ago, I started doing some new songs and I just kind of dropped it. I, uh, I really should get back and I, 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 you know, just, just the fact to package something and release it, it feels good, you know? put it on, um, you know, Apple music or whatever, you know, put it on iTunes and, you know, you never, you never know what, what will happen if something goes, you know, uh, gets noticed or, or hopefully would go viral. You never know. But, um, music basically now for me, is just knocking myself out, just whatever I want to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just the fidelity thing. It's just, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, you know, I have some really great speakers. I have some terrific home listening speakers called Shehenian acoustic speakers. They were they were very expensive years ago, and they're still state of the art stuff. And and but you know what? The kids don't care about that. I noticed the kids listen on these tiny little things. You know, these little stick to the wall speakers and these little Bluetooth speakers. They don't care about fidelity. I mean, you know, it's just amazing. The the the, the whole hi-fi system. When people used to have in their houses and, the, and to get the good speakers, get the good amplifier, that stuff's gone bye bye. Yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. Fidelity. They, you know, they listen on mono. It's just amazing. They, they don't even the, the concept to my kids. The concept of good fidelity is just doesn't exist. And you know, I, and it's interesting because you know, like with the whole headphone craze with beats right. and so forth um i mean if you ever have had an opportunity to put one of those on your head i mean they already tweak the sound that comes out of those so those things are so bass heavy i mean they're dictating you know how to listen to music but i'm kind of encouraged in the fact that you know at least with those headphones you get to hear everything, but well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the beach or to the pool and kids are just, you know, they're listening to these things on the, on the pill and all these. Right. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Well, cool, man. So, um, so are you, so you were born and raised in Queens. Is, is that correct? No, I was born in Queens, but I wasn't raised there. We lived out on the Island in, in the suburbs. And I grew up in Massapequa, or actually technically North Massapequa, Long Island. And then um, I lived in New York City for many years. I was a music director of an ad agency. I did commercials for many years. And then I started doing films. Then I went out to, I got a great review in uh, Variety and Hollywood Reporter on a film that I did my first feature. Then I said, oh, here I come, L.A. So I lived in L.A. for uh, close to 16 years. Oh, wow. And, 
yeah, we were out there um, quite some time. And then um, came back here about seven years ago. I can't believe it's been that long already, but came back here about seven years ago. And um, pretty much been concentrating on uh, the writing words, you know, yeah. the novel and, um, and writing. Well, geez, man, you are... You seem like the type of person you don't waste much time. <laughs> you do a lot of things, which, you know, for us common folk is, is very encouraging. Um, you know, obviously you have to have some talent, um, which obviously you do. But, you know, over the span of years, you've you've done quite a bit. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on this podcast. You know, Thank I think you. it's important for people to you know, just kind of brighten their horizons, you know, hear some stories, go back in time a little bit. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do. So, uh, before we jump into it, um, you know, some of the other things that I kind of, some of the questions that I kind of like to ask is, do you remember the first concert that you've ever attended? I, I do. And I was thinking about that. Actually was thinking about it after we, you, you asked me what concert I liked and I, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, the first concert I ever saw was at a place called the Westbury Music Fair, which is really, really famous. And um, I had seen shows in, 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 in little clubs and stuff, but this was the first true concert. It was Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, but they were really a, a golden oldies act at that point. This was in the 70s. Yeah. And uh, that was the first show I saw. Um, and I remember it was very, very interesting. Because I, when I was a kid, I actually liked the Four Seasons. I always liked the old stuff. You know, I, I loved the Four Seasons. And I ended up, I ended up meeting a, a gentleman named Bob Crew um, when I first went to Los Angeles. Bob Crew was uh, the guy that wrote most of their hits and produced all of their stuff. And he was such a kind gentleman. Um, his character is depicted in that uh, the Broadway show um, uh, with the Four Seasons. I forget the name of the show now. Uh, but yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. So, um, but um, he was such a kind gentleman. He died about oh, two or three years ago. But he was a great guy, very talented, talented writer and talented producer. How old were you? Um, when I when I saw the concert, yeah. I was um, fifteen, I think. Something like that. Okay, that's 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 appropriate. Yeah. Were you able to go by yourself, or did you have to uh, go in a group of uh, group of friends, or did your parents have to go with you? Well, you... I, a, a girl that I really liked at the time went, and I it was one of my sister's friends, and so I decided, yeah, I really want to go to that concert. So, but I liked the Four Seasons anyway, so it was interesting. We all went, you know, it was a bunch of kids that went. Yeah. Very Got nice. dropped by one of the parents, so maybe two cars, whatever it was. And we sat in all a row and, you know, and, um, yeah, it was fun. Very nice. Okay. So my next question is, is, um, I mean, you and I, we both know what concert you picked as your kind of right. most memorable concert, but right. give me two concerts that almost made that list. One was Paul McCartney and wings at the Nassau Coliseum in, uh, Oh, that's probably either 75 or 76. I can't remember. I think it, 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 was the, it was Wings at the Speed of Sound Tour, and that was 76. That was the summer. I think it was 70. Yeah, I believe it was uh, the summer of 76, the bicentennial year. And um, 
that was great because, um, you know, what well, was Paul McCartney, and we had these, NASA Coliseum had these seats where you could sit behind the stage. And really? we were, yeah, we weren't too far, it, you know, it was like the stage, just, you know, like, it's like a hockeyer rink. So okay. it was, yeah. And the stage was at one end on the on the ice, if you can picture that. And then behind those seats behind them, they did not close them off. So you sat behind the stage, and it was kind of interesting because you could be real close to the stage. I saw the doobies there the same way, and um, it was great because Paul, you know, he played piano a lot, and he would turn around and play to us a lot. He, and uh, it was great. You know, that was Paul Linda, and that was his famous lineup for that. For that, uh, I thought it was a terrific album. Oh, and you know, just seeing. McCartney, what are you going to say, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, and, what, and one of the reasons why I like to kind of ask what were the, the quote-unquote runner-ups <clears throat> as far as the concerts are concerned is because I want, I want to put this in perspective, right? Because here I am, I'm talking to you. Obviously, you're a music man. Um, you know, you, you, I mean, if you threw out a number <laughs> of how many concerts that you've been to, I'm sure that number is, is probably over 20. So it's nice to get some perspective when I'm asking you, dude, what is the most memorable concert? So that's kind of the backstory of, of kind of why I ask these questions. Because, right. I mean, to see Paul McCartney and that's not your most memorable concert, you know, that's quite amazing. And, you know, and the other thing, too, is, is that there's a lot of different things that go into making a concert memorable. Right. Um, you know, I I've seen some concerts that were just amazing, but that quirky, weird thing didn't happen at that concert or the person that I went with, you know, didn't really make it what it was. Right. So that's one of the things that I really enjoy about doing this concert and just kind of getting some backstory to kind of get some perspective, because you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think that we all can really think of a couple of different just crazy moments that happened um, at a concert. You know, we all have our favorite music venues. We all have our, our favorite artists. But when you take all of those things and just kind of roll it into one and, and, and it creates that experience, you know, that's that's really what I'm looking for. And, and so thank you for kind of sharing that with us. So that was one. What was the other? Uh not my favorite, right? Another just another one. Just another uh, one that almost made the list. Okay, let me think. Um, that almost made the list would probably be. Um, Nick Lowe, um, Nick Lowe, and and in his heyday. Yeah, it's between the Nick Lowe or the Ramones. Um, I would have to. Well, you know what? Actually, no. I'll take that back. I'll take that back. Nick Lowe is great, but probably one of my favorites. When I saw Elvis Costello at the Rumsey Playfield in New York City, um, which is a tiny. It is exactly what it was. This little playfield that they put a stage up, and um, they changed it now. They put up some more seats, but back then it was just some bleachers and just a you know a dirt and grassy area. And uh, a small stage, and Elvis Costello came out. This was probably 1991 or 92, okay. right before I went to California. And um, he did a show there that was just absolutely killer. It was so incredible. Yeah. And uh, that that was that was really really a terrific show. 
So that, that would be the second one I'd probably say. Yeah. No, that, was, that guy, I mean, Elvis Costello, I mean, for the most part, you know, he's just, you know, he's got his backup band, you know, but for the most part, it's just him. And man, that guy really knows how to connect with his audience. He is just so talented and so matter of fact that, and he just has his way of drawing you in, right? Right. He's incredible. And he's, cha- you know, he's, he's, he's a creative guy and he's, he's, he's been able to remain viable and through change i mean he's just he did his whole elvis costello and the attractions things and that was this concert it was this was almost like a reunion with the attractions it was the rock album called brutal youth i was really rock real real attractions type album that came out in the early 90s which was awesome highly recommend it if anybody hasn't heard that album it's called brutal youth elvis costello just terrific um and um that was kind of his reunion thing but he has changed so much over his career he's an album with the brodsky quartet i mean a string quartet yeah uh, uh you know so many different artists he's burt backrack that album they did so he's able to to morph and change and i think that he's always like i said before not comparing myself to him at all, but not, like I said before, knocked himself out. He, I th- he, I think he knocks himself out first and, and he's been fortunate enough for it to be very viable, you know, monetarily for himself because he's able to, his audience has, has not only put up with his changes, but changed with him and followed along. So he's always been made, make a terrific living just doing his pure art form, you know? Yeah. Uh, some stuff has been critically panned, but he's always kept moving, always kept shedding his feathers and growing a new color. Just, just, you know, he's, he's a true artist. Yeah. And I have a special place in my heart for guys like him who, you know, they started off as a solo act um, and then they get, they hook up with a band, you know, and they just really have that connection with the band. It's kind of like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, right? It's like, right. you know. Can you imagine being one of the heartbreakers? You know, it's like, okay, well, we hooked up with Tom Petty, everything is great, and then all of a sudden you see he comes out with a solo album. He's like, no, I'm just going to use some studio artists. You're like, what? (laughs) You know, but they kind of go back and forth, and they realize that there is something special with with that particular band, but yet, to your point, you know, at the end of the day, they just want to make music and. I think you know more than anybody else. It's just at the end of the day, you, you get the label, and they're talking about money, and they're they're looking at how much they have to pay you versus what they have to pay the band, and they're telling you that you know you're the reason why people are listening. It's just that's right. tough. I would never really want to be in that that position. Um, so I really do have a lot of respect for guys like that. Um, yeah, it's a cool. Joel, the Joel story, Billy Joel. Um, had his band for many, many years. Um, back up, you know, Delita DeVito, this guy Doug Stegmeyer on bass, and um, Richie Cannata on saxophone. And they, you know, they were together for many, many years. And then Billy decided that he wanted to get rid of that band. It was a formula that worked through all his albums. The Stranger, you know, multi, multi-platinum albums. He was, you know, number one singles, number one albums. And, um... 
all of a sudden he just it, one night he just fired everybody I, I, don't, I don't think he did mostly in person he'd been with these guys for years and he just fired everybody and got a new band and um you know, it didn't it didn't work very well for those poor guys, and I know um, uh, they hit hard times. You know, yeah, real times. Yeah, so it's it, that's a tough life. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a tough industry. That's for yep. sure. That's for sure. All right. Well, hey, thanks for uh, sharing. Um, you know, giving us some background to those you know those poor guys that didn't make your number one uh, your number one <laughs> concert, but I'm sure they'll get over it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, well, let's jump right into it. So tell us, um, what was your most memorable concert experience? Well, my most memorable concert experience has a real personal connection because um, I was an Elton John freak as a kid. I just loved Elton John just spoke to me just that his the records that he made, you know, Yellow Dick Road and. Uh, Captain Fantastic, Madman Across the Water, Tumbleweed Connection, all those albums. There's not a bad moment on any of those albums. They just are incredible. The songwriting was just so torqued up and so wonderful. The production, um, this producer, Gus Dudgeon, he just probably the greatest rock and roll pop producer of all times. He really made Elton John. Yeah. Uh, and um, if you listen to those records, boy, you know you just say, "Holy smokes, we have not we have not progressed any further from that in pop recording." In fact, I think we've gone backwards. You know, <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other hour with you, Mark. Right. <laughs> but um, and then I'll yell, "Get off my front lawn!" At the end of that. Um, but yeah, there's just like. Those albums were recorded so beautifully, just wonderful. Anyway, so I, I, you know, I, I would, whenever Elton John would come around, I would go, whatever money I could scrape together as a kid, I would go and see him. And um, in the in this in the summer of 1976, uh, in the month of August, he played eight nights at Madison Square Garden. Eight nights. Eight nights. Yes, eight nights. And uh, eight nights. It still holds the record, I think. It still holds the record for sellouts. Eight sellouts at Madison Square Garden in a row. I went to five out of those eight. Did you really? <laughs> I went to five. I went to five of those eight concerts, and you know, back then concerts weren't hundreds of dollars for a seat. They were, you know, thirteen fifty, seventeen dollars, ten fifty. I'm not kidding. It was. It wasn't that expensive. Um, but to sit in the front row at, at a show that was that popular or get, you know, white right down front, you those were all bought up by the scalpers. So I had to pay the, to get a front row seat from one of those shows, just one of them. I had to pay the phenomenal amount of $50. And that's that's all the money that I had in the world. And I paid 50 bucks for a front row seat to Elton John. And um, previous to that, because I was such an Elton John freak, and I was 16, on my 16th birthday, um, a girlfriend of mine made me, almost as a joke, it really was a joke, this Elton John cape, a pair of Elton John glasses, and most importantly, a set, a pair of Elton John boots. She made these, she looked like these... Uh, 
what we used to call chucka boots and they, but she built platforms on them and they were spangled and they, she was an artist. Uh, may she rest in peace. She's no longer with us. She was a, a terrific artist. And, um, she ended up going to the, um, school of design. I mean, the, um, uh, that fashion Institute of technology in New York, but so yeah. she made these really gorgeous boots and, um, I had them and I said, you know, I didn't wear them. They were kind of a gag thing and they really didn't fit me that well. So I took them to that concert. I put them in a, a Tropicana orange juice box, tied it up with twine and took it to the concert. Now you think these days you never get into a box with a, bo- a, a, a Tropicana orange juice box tied up with I twine. <laughs> so, you know, I took that, I'm sitting down in front row and I went over to one of his roadies and I said, give these to Elton. And, um, I had, I was, you know, a 16 year old punk with my, I had, I even had a, a an embroidered madman across the water jacket on. I had, you know, child <laughs> of the seventies. I had a, well, you know, a, a Levi's jacket with embroidery on the back. Of course. That was, and that was made by two girlfriends, which was the requirement for being a child of the seventies. You had to have a, a macrame jacket with made by not the first girlfriend starts it. You break up with them and the second one finishes it. That's what, <laughs> and, and, um, so I gave the boots to, um, this, guy and you know it was like early in the show in the middle of the show and the show was kind of long as i didn't see him so i thought they maybe they just tossed him and that and he did his final number and they went off and i knew since i had seen the show a few times before this i knew they went off and they you know those stage lights went dark and he comes back out and the piano was right in front of me the piano was center stage right forward on the stage and i was sitting right below that standing actually so and he, he he comes out and he grabs, you know, he, he, I see him pick up the boots and he puts them on top of the piano. He actually, he stands up and he goes to the whole garden. He goes, I got a new boot. Square garden. Puts them on top. The place goes nuts, right? <clears throat> he puts them on top of the piano and begins Saturday night to write for fighting. I thought I was going to die. No, I, I thought I was. I thought I was gonna die. And you know, I wrote him this note and put him in the boots. You know, that as a kid would write a note. And I think I asked him for money for an electric piano, or whatever. I I don't know. And I remember like the other guys in the band were like reading the note and laughing. <laughs> so it was just, it was quite an incredible night. I I was walking on air. I couldn't believe that you know he took my gift to put him on the piano. And I had forever searched for pictures of that, but I don't think there were any. Um, well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I was doing a little research and there is a, there's a website, website out there and it's basically just a bunch of stories about people attending Elton John uh, concerts. And so I was like, oh my God, I wonder if I'm going to run across your story on here. All right. But it's just amazing. Like, like you mentioned, you know, 13, $13 ticket. Yeah. You know, a couple people were talking about how, you know. Their, their tickets were on average was about fifty bucks. I mean, and you yep. can imagine back then how many lawns you had to mow, you know, yep. to, to to get fifty bucks. All right. But you know, the other thing too, and you mentioned it post nine eleven. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've walked in with a fifth of something in my crotch, you know, right. and they, they find it. But to walk right. in there with a box with boots and no questions right. whatsoever. Right, exactly. That is amazing. Different times. Yeah, different times. So let me ask you this then. So was this the first of the five out of the eight concerts 
Um, I think it was number three. It was number three. If I'm remembering correctly, it was number three. But it was getting to be like a job. I was commuting in and out on the train from Long Island, like a commuter, going to see these shows. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, we got off on the the Penn, the Penn Station stop right there and just walked yep. across the street. and no, Right upstairs, actually. It, yeah. goes, it goes right underneath the garden, and you get out and just go right up the elevator, and you're in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Uh, I remember those days. It's nothing easier. So, like, so let me ask you this. Your parents let you, at 16, go to five concerts at Madison Square Garden. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yes, that's, yep. that's I mean, about it. You know, it was again different times, yeah. just just different times. You know, as you got went to the local station, Massapequa Station. You know, I got dropped off there, get on the train, and go. You know, it was just different. I, I all I can say. You know, my parents would say that, but things were so different. They was just so different. Yeah, yeah. You didn't worry about much. So you mentioned a couple things. Um, you mentioned a couple girlfriends. You mentioned the the embroidered jacket and the the, <laughs> the prerequisite of having two or three girlfriends. So did you go to the each concert with the same girl, different girl, by yourself? No, this was um, I couldn't afford to take anybody. I think I, my my sister and I went. My sister was just as much of an Elton John freak. Actually, not as much. About ninety percent is of a freak that I was. And so I think we went a few, a few together, but the, the balance of them, I went by myself, you know, it was just not anybody could, you know, I'm trying to think, I think one was a few different people, but I think the majority of those was just by myself. You know, I just would go in. Um, none of my friends really dug out and John that much. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's, it's funny because, you know, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, which is for me, it's just so awesome to, you know, to hear, okay, well, this is the person that I liked and this is the most memorable concert. And then for me, just to kind of, you know, do a little research and, 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 and kind of get a better idea of some of these artists, but I'm obviously familiar with Elton John. Um, you know, I, I was born in 71, I'm 46. So for me, there's two Elton Johns. There's the, the, the later, you know, the 2000s, Right. Later, Elton John. Right. Um, and then there is the 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 Elton John. The other Elton John that I know is the Elton John that like, okay, so the one story, my one Elton John story is the fact that he was a big Tower Records guy. So right. the big Tower Records obviously was the one out here in LA. Um I, I grew up in Indiana slash Chicago, and we had a couple Tower Records out there. Um but, you know, obviously the big one was, was, was L.A. And he was just, he was a guy that would just stop in. He was just like a regular guy. I mean, he was in that Tower Records, you know, a couple times a week. You right. know, which says a lot about who he is. And for me, you know, I used to be a DJ, you know, and I'm just a record store guy. And so just to, can you imagine being at a record store and seeing Elton John? Better yet, can you imagine working at a record store and having Elton John, you know, call and ask, you know, what records you have? You know, never mind. I'll come in and I'll just scour the records, you know? So for me, it, it says a lot about who he is. But the thing is, is that that 2000 Elton John for me was really just a guy who pretty much just played all of his, his old stuff. Right. But when you mentioned um, this particular concert uh, in 76, 
Um, I actually went and took a look at the set list. Oh, you, oh, that's right. Yeah, they have. There's a there's that website that has all the set lists for the concert. Yeah, and so I'm reading the songs, and I realize I, I did not know that a lot of the songs that he like a lot of his popular songs were actually created before '76. I mean, I oh, had yeah. no idea Rocket Man was. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. done before 76. And the cool right. thing, and one of the things that I really appreciate about um, artists from back in the day is, they, I mean, they were releasing an album a year. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, these days, these guys, they release an album every, you know, four or five years. They go on tour. And, you know, I get it. But the work ethic that these guys have. And there was two an album. There was two a year from Elton for a long time. Um, his, um, his deal with universal was two albums per year. And that's what they did. Oh my gosh. Yep. I can't even imagine two albums per year. That's a lot of work. And it, you know, I think a lot of it has to do, and maybe you can kind of, you know, jump in on this, but you know, the love of making music, um, versus, you know, at that time, you know, just having the opportunity to make music, you know, as an artist, I think, you know, you have that opportunity and you, you don't know how long it's going to last. So back then, I don't know if they had contracts where you had to make a certain amount of records, you know, per year. Um, they did. Yeah, they did. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I mean, I'm looking, you know, um, Golden Golden Yellow Brick Road seventy four that came out in I think October seventy four Caribou was in June of seventy four yeah <laughs> Captain Fantastic in May it's I can't it's, it blows my mind yeah they just they they toured and recorded that's you know they just tore it up that uh, yeah those is, that's some great stuff yeah and you're and you're exactly right I mean I kind of fell I. At, come 77, 78, for me, Elton was pretty much done. Um, and I almost feel like I betray the Elton fan of me when I say that. But I, but it, I, quite frankly, he didn't grab me anymore. And, and um, I, I don't, you know, I tried to listen to his modern stuff and I just couldn't get into it. So yeah. I, I think that... Um, he was he was so unbelievable, but I think it kind of burnt out. Quite frankly, I think it was just it was just finished. Um, yeah. well, you know, and, it, and that happened. Look at the what the what the man did. I mean, he you know he probably would want to punch me in the nose for saying this because he's released a lot of albums over the last thirty years. But I um, I really stopped. There was an album called Blue Moves. I really liked that. That was in '76. And then um, in 77, 78, he wasn't recording two albums a year anymore at that time. He um, he released uh, an album called A Single Man. And there was a couple of decent tracks on that. But after that, it was like, uh-oh, some, I don't know what happened. Um, I don't, you know, he just, I just think he kind of ran out. You know, artists don't last forever. But his candle burned a long time. Uh, you know, he, 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 he went really at a high octane output for a very long time. And he did mostly better than most, I think. But uh, I just kind of, I kind of lost touch with him. I didn't, um, I wasn't digging all the other stuff, but his early stuff, I mean, just, 
you know, that the, the goodbye Elric road album, I just, you know, I, I listened to it today and it is, it sounds as fresh and as exciting as it did when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny though, too, because <laughs> I'll say it. I mean, I, I, I kind of say it jokingly, but you know, the Coke was a lot better back in 74 <laughs> through 80, <laughs> you know, I mean, and that was, and that's the other Elton John that I wasn't really familiar with, which is, you know, the guy pounding on the piano and jumping around and, uh, you know, oh, yeah. the, just the whole theatrics of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I can imagine, I can only imagine, I mean, I, I, I see the studio, you know, the studio, uh, um, was it 64, 54, you know, I, I get that, but, there was just so much creativity going on in that particular time because, you know, when you're his age and you're hanging out with those type of people, um, mm-hmm. everybody just kind of vibed off of each other. And it was all about, you know, creating something new and, and really being true to yourself. And right. you know, and I think you see that a lot. I mean, just in general, when you're young, you don't think about what other people think for the most part. Right. So you right. have that opportunity to be creative and a lot of times it's stuff that we've never heard before. But um, but the fact that you spent some time in L.A., um, one thing that I came across was, you know, I think he had, he had came out with an album and like way, way early in his career. Um, and I think kind of what set it off for him and you, you may have more information about this was uh, he was doing a show at the Troubadour in L.A. And yep. uh, a couple of the guys from Three Dog Night were there, and Diana Ross was there. So here we got Diana Ross again, you know, finding a, another great artist and mm-hmm. kind of spreading the word, which which I found interesting because, again, it just goes to show you that, you know, Diana Ross is not pigeonholed into any type of genre of music. You know, she just has a really right. good good ear for music. But it was just very interesting. I mean, I'm always interested to see, you know, what was that thing? What was the it thing that kind of catapulted him? Um, But he did have a writing partner. Do you know anything about that? Uh, Yeah. uh, Bernie? Bernie? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about him. Um, Well, I think Bernie was a little younger than than Elton, and he um, was just a a young kid and um, just started – writing lyrics with Elton and Elton, you know, as talented as he was, he really, I think he had tried his hand a few times at writing words and music and it didn't pan out. But if you listen to, I think some of the things that, um, that make them such a terrific team and it's almost an odd team is a lot of the times there's not a lot of rhyme in Elton John stuff. If you listen to the lyrics, there is there is there is rhyme a bunch of times, but in a lot of songs, things don't rhyme, and I think it's very interesting. You know, uh, there's not a lot of pop songs where you don't have this symmetrical rhyming, and there's a lot of Elton John songs, and of course, I probably won't be able to think one. Uh, you know, it, where where he he's not rhyming, but a lot of times they don't rhyme, and it's in that I think that's the real point of difference, and I did I. I only really thought about that in the last few years that I was listening and going, he's not rhyming. 
And his, his phrases aren't rhyming. Let's say ABA rhyming or however they, they call it. There's different formats of rhyming and different – they describe it certain ways, which I'm not smart enough to know. But, um, you know, it's supposed to be female rhyme and male rhyme. I forget how it works. But um, he, he didn't do that a lot, you know. So I thought that was – I think that was really interesting. And Bernie was just um, – just a poet, really, you know, free spirit poet. And um, they just hit it off and they started having some big hits. And um, starting with an album called, um, a song was called Skyline Pigeon. And uh, the first album was called Empty Sky. And uh, they, they had some English success. And then, of course, his big album, um, Honky Chateau, in 1972, we, we had, his, I think, his biggest hit, Rocket Man. And then after yeah. that, he was off to the right. Cool. Okay. So <laughs> the other thing that I want to know, what is, so what did you do after that concert? Did you just I jump back really, on the train and, and head I home? Or? I didn't have any money to do anything else, or I couldn't go into bars. I was up to the right. So I think I just went home, and I, I, didn't, I don't think I slept much because I was so jazzed, you know? Yeah. So did you uh did you get laid that night? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I did not. I did not. No. So that was so, so that experience was enough to just like yeah, I, I mean it was just I mean you were thinking about it the next couple of days. It was just a yeah. total fulfilled experience, right? Yeah, it was. It was. I love it. Well, cool, man. Um no, that's awesome. I mean, I can't even think of one time where an artist on stage actually even, like, recognized me. <laughs> so, I mean, so did he look at you? Or did he have any idea, like, who you were? Or I don't think so, because there was I, – I really don't think so. You know, um, I don't – I just remember looking at them – and I remember they read the note that was attached to the shoes and I, I'm, and the band I think was getting, as I digested it over the years, I thought they were like reading like that they were reading this cool note, but they were probably laughing at the note. Cause I put so much, such silly childish stuff in the note. I remember asking, I think I said before, asked them if he could get me an electric piano and, and it just you know, <laughs> stuff when you were 15, 16, you would write a, a letter to your hero, you know? So, um, there was nothing more I wanted in the whole world than a Fender Rhodes electric piano at that point, but of course I couldn't afford one. So I, I think I asked him about that. And, and, um, no, I don't think he, I don't think we didn't make any eye contact or anything. That was, there was a divide, you know, the stage was elevated and there was a space in between the front row where those metal, I remember those metal, well, those police barricade metal kind of fences. And then, of course, there was a bunch of big goons there separating the stage. So, no, we didn't really have a personal connection at all. Nice. So were you telling this story to all your buddies at school the following week? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, well, this was August, so we hadn't gone back to school yet. But, yeah, everybody heard about it. But then again, you know, I, as a young guy, it wasn't a badge of honor to love Elton John back then. It just yeah. – it was – you know, it was like if it was Led Zeppelin or like one of those, you know, Alban Brothers or something like that, that was cool. But it wasn't really cool to like Elton John uh, because he was too poppy. Yeah. So it was kind of ridiculed, um, especially because he was flamboyant 
and I don't think he was out of the closet. I don't think he had come out at that point. Yeah. But uh, he, I don't think he came out till not. I was. I wasn't too long after. I think it was actually. It was. It was in '77. It was a year later, when in Rolling Stone, the, I remember the article. The title was Elton John's Frank Talk. That was the title of the album. A title of the story in Rolling Stone, where he had, you know, admitted that uh, he was uh, gay. And um, but I think, you know, young boys being who they were, everybody was like. You like Elton John, you know, know, what are you, a girl? You know, that kind of thing. So, but I remember admitting uh, when I was in um, junior high school, even younger, that I I really loved Burt Backrack. And I remember I almost got beat up, you know? Yeah, I I could imagine. I dug dug Burt Backrack. I always did love those stuff. You know, I loved Eat of the Wind of San Jose and all those great songs that he wrote, The Look of Love, all that stuff. And I, I nearly got beat up in seventh grade because I said that. Well, you know, all those guys that would have beat you up are all like, you know, working at a auto dealership, which, you know, <laughs> it's not horrible. I mean, I'm just saying, but, but, the, but my point is, is that, you know, obviously there were things that, you know, inherently you enjoyed and that you glommed onto, which has really helped you out throughout your life. Yeah. I mean, you've done a hell of a lot of stuff, man. I know you might look back at it and you know, look and say, okay, well, yeah, I did these things and it's not a big deal. But for a guy like myself, um, kudos, man. Thank you very much, Martha. It means a lot. Yeah. Thank good. Good. All right. Well, Hey, again, thank you for, uh, kind of taking us down that, that road. I, I love going back in time and just getting a sense of what life used to be like. I'm going to try to bring a box full of the box of boots to my next concert. <laughs> I'll report back. <laughs> so, Hey, um, the next, uh, the next part of this podcast is the, um, it's the dinner party playlist, uh, portion of this podcast, which right. I really do enjoy because again, just kind of getting some history and some background of, you know, just who you are and, what kind of music you like it's it's really cool to see you know what people would play um at their dinner party playlist so i've done this a couple times uh and since i've done this there's a couple couple of kind of questions that have kind of popped up so before we jump into this Mm -hmm. give me uh, give me some insight to okay for starters where would your dinner party take place would it be at home or would it be somewhere else uh is, now, is this a fantasy dinner party or something very, very practical? Well, I, it, it's up to you. So, when you came up with your dinner party okay. playlist, what did you have and what did you have in mind? I pictured a grand room um, with uh, butlers and maids. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting way into fantasy here. Uh, no, just an, an elegant big room. Um, you know, I'm a big F. Scott Fitzgerald fan, so something along the lines of that. Uh, modern style, though, but just something elegant. Um, it's such a great idea to do that. Nobody does that anymore. You know, it's a grand, it's the real serious dinner party where everybody dresses up and stuff like that. You know, everybody, 
everybody's so loose and lax with with clothing these days, which is cool. But that that would be a nice thing to do, for, and not for not for a wedding, not for a funeral, not for a birthday, not for an anniversary, but just, just to have a real. Um, you know, serious dress-up dinner party. What a great concept! So that's basically where I went in my mind with that. Okay, and um, and that would require some really classy music. You know, uh, things that I consider it would be wonderful dinner party music. Okay, right on. So, what would the food be like? What would the food be like? Oh, I think a terrific steak. You know. Um, just a great, maybe a great fillet, or possibly lobster, or both. Okay. Um, some maybe you know some great uh, maybe a pasta entree. Okay. Uh, I mean uh, antipasto kind of thing with, and. Um, well, I think that I think you hit it on the head when you mentioned the butlers. So I think that uh, I think we can get an idea. If the butlers are there, there's, the food is going to be great. <laughs> like at San Simeon, you know, that's that's basically what I you know would like to have it in the, in the big dining hall at the, at Hearst Castle. Okay, okay. So just to bring it full circle, uh, what kind of what kind of beverages would the attendees? Uh, what options would they have? Well, I used to be quite a wine snob, um, um, so I would, you know, probably want to handpick a, a nice wine list, um, champagne if someone else would want that, but uh, probably just some great pairings, especially with the steaks of some nice uh, some California uh, cabs or even some Washington State cabs, um, possibly some, uh, you know, we could maybe do a couple of flights of this, some French and some Italian wine. And I was fortunate enough years to go to go to a couple of those kind of dinner parties um, on the old Bel Air um, circuit, the screening circuit. Uh, I used to know this uh, gentleman who was a fairly, very, uh, not fairly, but very successful uh, TV producer and uh, get invited a lot. And and uh, I remember one stood out where he had these chef and they had all different kinds of dishes and we did wine pairings that was just so much fun you know, to taste all the different wines with different foods and stuff yeah. so something like that you know okay well my next question was going to be what time of year um however i mean if we're talking california <laughs> i guess it doesn't matter but right. the interesting thing is i mean you and i both know i mean you being out east and me growing up in the in the Midwest, you know the time of year actually could play into the whole scenario as well. So, in, in, in your perfect kind of dinner party ballroom scenario, you know, am I am I wearing a uh, a, a, a camel? Am I wearing a, a, an overcoat? Is is my girl wearing a fur, or are we just coming in with you know our her flapper dress? <laughs> kind of give us some uh, insight to what time of year you. I, I, I guess envision. to dress comfortably, you know, with ties and stuff, it'd probably have to be late fall. Even, you know, uh, I would say somewhere we're not hampered by the snow, somewhere in the fall, probably. Okay. Right. Nice on. And cool. Yeah. All right. So, um, so the cool thing, the other cool thing about it is, is, I mean, as you know, as a music man, I think it's important to have a good uh, dinner party playlist um i was talking to a gentleman 
uh, just actually just last week when I was in Chicago and he told me a story about how he was having a dinner party and how um, he, for the most part, what he does, I mean, and most people do these days, they have their their iPhone and they do the Bluetooth thing and they, they have their own little playlist on their iPhone. Um, but somebody hijacked the Wi-Fi and started playing their own music from from their own <laughs> from their own iPhone. Um, so that was a touchy situation for him to handle. Um, but I think it's just really, I think it's important to, to set the mood uh, because I think people need to, you know, A, feel comfortable, uh, you know, with the music, but they also kind of need to be guided. And that's, that's the right. fun thing. So with that being said, why don't you uh, tell us your dinner party playlist? Well, it's, um, it starts out with uh, a song called Never Let Me Go, by, um, and the artist is Boz Skaggs. And Boz, uh, people mostly remember him from um, pop albums, um, Silk Degrees, which is a big one with you know different songs, uh, Lido Shuffle, and um, uh, you know all those big hits that he had, Georgia, and um, it was a huge, huge album for him. Just the number one hits all over it. But um, he did a um, an album of uh, classic. Uh, American songbook type songs um, and um, I, I'm really never a big fan of these aging rockers doing American classic songbook um, because you know standards I'm not not a fan of it I just I don't think it's ever been done right except for him uh, I mean when I heard the Rod Stewart album I'm you know I'm sorry to most people love that album it, to me it sounds like Carol Channing <laughs> um, it's, you know, sing, singing Broadway. It, I just couldn't believe how horrible the record is. And, um, you know, Rod Stewart is one of the greatest rock singers of all time. Absolutely. I mean, just hands down, one of the greatest rock singers of all time. But please don't do standards. I mean, I just, I can't even listen to it. Anyway, that, that's my personal taste. I'm sure people listening to this are just going to disagree. But Boz did a record and absolutely blew me away. I couldn't believe the recording, first off, the, re the engineers and the producer genius. Um, nothing's too loud. Everything's perfect. And most of the modern American standard songbook kind of records that they do, the bass is always booming and way too loud, just, just the way people record today. Again, that's for our next program that we talk about where recording has gone. But this one is... Uh, you know, what I'll say is this, it's recorded beautifully. Um, his voice is like an orchestra in itself. His voice just lends to this type of singing. And I was so pleasantly surprised. So I listened to the album all the time. So the first, so the first is a cutoff that called never let me go. And, and then the second one is, um, uh, another cut call for all we know, uh, again, by Boz, uh, just, um, what can I say? I, I I can't say enough about that album. Just love it. How does this? So what does this particular song? When you listen to this song, how does it make you feel? The first one, "Never Let Me Go." Uh, it, he, he's just like this warm blanket that you know. When you listen to this stuff, it's just like the, the album is almost a little melancholy. Um, some of the songs are a little mournful. You know, um, 
Uh, and and it's romantic. Some of them are a little mournful, romantic, but it's just, again, it's just like this warm blanket. You put it around you. It's the, the piano and the bass. That it just sounds like you're in the recording studio with them. I, I don't think I've ever heard a better, better recorded um, classic standards album ever. I, I don't. And um, and again, it's that voice. You know what? Bob, what made Boz was his voice. It's very, it's very singular. It's very individualistic. Is he doesn't sound like anybody else, and nobody sounds like him. And um, and his type of singing, just he's matured. And um, boy, does he get it done with this. And that song, just never let me go. Just, uh, just beautifully romantic. That's all I can say. Okay, perfect. All right. So what's your third song? Um, Don't You Go Away Mad by Sinatra. Uh, I have a personal connection to that a little bit because um, the man that um, arranged and produced that whole album for Sinatra was a man named Neil Hefty. And Neil um, was handpicked by Sinatra to run Sinatra's new label called Reprise. That was the Reprise label that was Sinatra's own uh, product, his own label. And uh, Neil was the head of the whole label. So he, Neil did the um, arrangements and, uh, and and all that and producing for Sinatra. Now Neil was a accomplished arranger and band leader and uh, record producer for so many people, um, including himself. He was an unbelievable trumpet player, but his arranging skills were incredible. People most likely know Neil from the Batman theme. You know, na 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 na. That's Neil Hefty. He wrote that. Oh, okay. probably, probably wrote it in his sleep, but you can still hear the brilliance of Hefty, especially in that last chord, the the last. But about Batman at the end. Yeah. The the way that's in musical terms, the way that's spelled out in orchestration is just brilliant. So that that was Neil, and the other thing you you know Neil is um, the Odd Couple theme. Um, it's a TV show and the movie. That's Neil, and um, yeah, he did the whole movie score to the Odd Couple. So he's probably one of my favorite film composers, one of my favorite composers, and um, the personal connection is I got to hang with him a bit out in Los Angeles. We used to. Uh, talk and I used to see him around town a lot and and um it was you know I was looking he passed in 2008 I think it was um um but I was just looking at my old you know when people used to carry little phone books or black books just I was looking at his name still in there I used to call him up and speak to him and he was a he was just a gentleman and um yeah, the talent that is uh, sorely missed. So that that uh, that song, "Don't You Go Away, Man," is a dynamite. I didn't pick it because of, because it was Neil's tune, but I by I picked it because it's one of my favorite Sinatra songs. It's just a great, great song. Very nice, very nice. Okay, continue. Where are we at uh, in this uh, dinner party? I'm, I'm feeling good. I feel sure. like. Uh, the music is is doing all the heavy lifting for me as as I yeah. hold conversation. <laughs> this this you know we're, the, the music is moving along. It's very romantic so far. Don't you go away, man. It's pretty much still a romantic song. Um, just real, just swinging Sinatra. Nothing too big and brassy. 
And then we get the song. The next one is called Girl Talk by Neil Hefty. And um, that is just, it's, it's, it's an instrumental the way Hefty did it. Um, it's just a dynamite song. The lyrics are by a man named Bobby Troop were um, just terrific. They're very sexist. If you if you read them today, they're, 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 they they sound extremely sexist, but um, but they're but it's just great. Um, I, and I just uh, that that song just blows me away. That's by Neil. Uh, the one after that is uh, we start to you know maybe we're getting towards the uh, dessert here. Um, it's Deacon Blues by Steely Dan. I think I'm a big Steely Dan fan, and I think Deacon Blues, and I've, I've heard them interviewed about it, that they, when they were making that, they were looking at each other and say, holy moly, we, did we make this? That is just such an incredible pop record. It's a very long record. I think it's five or six minutes long, and it's just... Um, what can I say about the song Deacon Blues? The lyrics are, well, you know, Becker and Fagan, who were Steely Dan, their lyrics are always um, pretty wild. And boy, what, the lyrics are wild, you know. Um, uh, what's the one, how does the one verse go? And, you know, and die behind the wheel. Drink scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel. They got a name for the winners in the world. I want a name when I lose. They call Alabama the Crimson Tide. Call me Deacon Blues. I mean, you know, who puts that in the song? Who puts the who puts the lyrics, they call Alabama the Crimson Tide in a pop song? <laughs> now, uh, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful, sad almost, but just... The arrangement, the saxophones on it. This guy Pete Chrisley blows his tenor sax solo that'll just knock your socks off. Um, one of my favorite songs. Uh, I, I, I think I told you I I didn't pick all the all these songs aren't my favorite rec pop recordings, but they were my picks for a dinner party. But Deacon Blues happens to be one of my favorite pop recordings of all time. That's for sure. As is the next one, and um, it's called "I'm Not in Love" by 10CC. Um, I actually wrote a short story because I love this song so much. I, I wrote a short story based on the song, and uh, at a period of time in my life, I was, you know, and it was this. That song came out in '75. I was a kid, and, and um, the song meant a lot to me at that time. And, and to me, that was just such a breakthrough recording the way they did it all those voices that they you know was all analog and um there was no sense on that stuff but um the reason it's on this dinner party list i think it's one of the most romantic songs ever recorded again we're going through a romantic theme here and then um i concentrate on you um is the next song that's um, off the um sinatra um, Bossa Nova album with uh, um, with Showbeam, and um, that just uh, what can I say? It just you listen to that thing. You just you, maybe people are going to get up and dance at this point because that's the that's the time to take your wife, girlfriend, whomever, and start dancing. And then it's just that's the close dancing song of, of all of them. Um, again, follow with the next one, Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars. That's the next pick. Again, it's off the same album. Um, that's the last one there. It's just um, 
you know, close dancing, uh, very romantic, and uh, I could listen to that stuff all day long. All anything on this list, I could listen to any any day of the week, any time. But I think this that would round out the um, the list there of uh, romantic dinner party music. Very nice. Well, you know, it, it's funny because you know I, I kind I listen to these songs and. You know, as a African-American, you know, I grew up in the inner city. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been around, but, right. but if I went to a dinner party and this was the dinner party playlist, um, especially after you sharing with us the venue, um, the wine, um, just the whole, the gamut of the whole experience, I, I see myself waking up the next morning in a little bit of a haze. <laughs> But, you know, and just kind of contemplating on the evening and, and what transpired. But I have a feeling that the soundtrack is, would be clear as day. You know, oh, just cool. because, I mean, Boss Gags, oh my gosh. A lot of these songs on here I hadn't, uh, <clears throat> I haven't really listened to in, in a long, long time. I'm, I'm affected. I'm, a, I'm truly affected by this, uh, this playlist because... You know, for me, um, a lot of the musical experiences that I've had, you know, they come from other people, right? Um, you know, I have a lot of friends that have hooked me up with a lot of music that I, in a million years, would have never come into contact with. And, you know, to be able to go to a dinner and to have this just kind of strumming out of the speakers, you know, for me, it's just, it, it, it builds who I am as an individual. Right, right. It, it puts a lot in perspective. It, it, especially nowadays with the music that's out there, it really gives you an opportunity to kind of stop, you know, and go back and really appreciate. I guess I'll say it, you know, real music, <laughs> and uh, and that's the opportunity that you provided me by uh, just kind of breaking down this dinner party playlist so i really appreciate it um yeah man just i mean the whole thing uh, you know i mentioned it before you know obviously i I, i'm doing this so that i can just kind of take people down that road take them back a couple spaces get out of the rat race and kind of go back and remember when things were a little bit simpler um but at the same time it's just (laughs) <laughs> my iPod list is getting longer and longer. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, the other day I was uh, just going out for a walk and, you know, I have a little playlist with your songs on here and it's just a whole different experience at life in general today, right. <laughs> you know, really which cool. I would have never have had if uh, I didn't reach out to you. So, so again, um, you know, I'm not going to have open... some great concept there, Mark. It's the, the concept is, is, I never thought about it because everybody, you know, everybody always asks each other, and I've heard artists interviewed saying, what's your favorite music? What's your favorite song? But your concept is brilliant because you have to think of what is the music doing? What is it, you know, what do you want to happen at this, you know, which, at such a, a wonderful event, like a great dinner party? And it's just, it's again, you don't necessarily pick your favorite songs, but you pick stuff that's emotionally geared to what you want to accomplish. It's a brilliant concept. Congratulations on that. It's cool. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, I know that you're a very busy man. Um, So real quick, uh, before you go, um, would you have... 
Twitter handle? Uh, do you have a, a social media presence? Anything you want to pub at this particular yeah. time? I'm on Twitter, Ernie Mannix on Twitter. Um, and um, you can look up the, the novel Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley is on Facebook. That's Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley. And just look me up also on SoundCloud. If you want to hear some of my music, it's on SoundCloud under my name, Ernie Mannix. Just search me out there and uh, you can hear some of my stuff. Perfect. All right. Thanks again. I know that's uh, pretty late out there on the East Coast. Um, so last question, Yankee fan or Mets fan? Grew up a Mets fan, but I'm now a Yankee fan. But I'm disgusted that they tore down the old stadium. So I'm kind of boycotting them. <laughs> I had the pleasure of checking out a Yankees game, like my first Yankees game, the last uh, the last season of the uh, old stadium. So uh, oh. I feel like I oh, accomplished God. something. So <laughs> there you have it. Perfect. All right, man. Well, thanks Thank again. So I appreciate it, pal. All right. Take care. I'll be in touch, okay? Thank you, buddy. Bye. This moment to